And now, if, if you're able, will you please stand as we hear the word of the Lord read together? And we're reading Isaiah chapter 64, verses 1 through 12. Isaiah 64, 1 through 12. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time and shall we be saved. We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, where our fathers praised you, has been burned by fire, and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Lord, uh, we come this morning, uh, every one of us, out of just uh, incredibly different weeks, uh, some full of busyness and chaos, some full of cheer and comfort, uh, some full of grieving and sadness, uh, some a little bit of all those things. Uh, Father, we come to your word this morning. We hear uh, these somber words reminding us of our need for you. So Lord, we ask as we come to your word that you would uh, help our hearts to be attentive, that you would help us to be able to listen, uh, that you would still our minds, that we could bring our cares and burdens that uh, distract us and bring those to you. Father, we thank you for your word, um, even the somber passages. I'm here to pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning, as we continue to prepare our hearts uh, to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, uh, we're going to be studying Isaiah chapter 64, verses 1 through 12, which I just read for us. And as, I, um, as, as we read these verses, one thing that you'll notice is that Isaiah 64 is actually a prayer. Uh, it's actually a prayer. It's written to God. In this passage, Isaiah is praying to the Lord on behalf of himself and also for the people of Israel. And as you read this prayer, you see that this is the cry of a man who knows that if God that if God won't intervene for Israel, nobody else will. You know, the picture that we find in this passage is of a people who have exhausted all of their resources, and yet they are still stuck in need of rescue. In my sophomore year of college, 
Uh, my roommate and I, uh, a guy named Jeremy Goodwin, who uh, some of you met at my installation service, he played the guitar for us. Well, in my sophomore year of college, Jeremy and I decided uh, that we were going to go hiking at Table Rock. Uh, some of you uh, have probably been to Table Rock, uh, but for those of you who haven't, uh, Table Rock is a mountain in South Carolina. Uh, it's not too far from the North Carolina border. Uh, it's not too far from Brevard. And it's about a two and a half hour hike to the top. At least it was when I was 20 and I uh, had good knees. Uh, it might take a little longer than two and a half hours these days. Um, and so neither one of us was a, a skilled hiker or really had done much hiking. Uh, but we both enjoyed being outside, so we decided we're going to go hiking that day. Well, one thing led to another, and uh, we ended up arriving at Table Rock around 4.30 in the afternoon. And uh, we, knew, we knew that it was getting late, uh, a little bit of a late start for hiking, but kind of armed with the enthusiasm, and if you'll forget the term, ignorance of youth, uh, we figured if we hurried, we'd be fine. We just, uh, I had a bag with me. It was stocked with water. I had a first aid kit. Um, a disposable camera, I had a hymnal, you know, just in case there's time to sing, I had a flashlight, you know, so kind of based on our provisions and uh, again on our youthfulness, we, we really were pretty sure that we could handle anything that Table Rock would throw at us that day. And uh, so we began hiking around 4.30 in the afternoon. And, and the hike was taking a little longer than we expected it to. And eventually I just left Jeremy and I just said I'd meet back up with him on my way back down the mountain and I ran on up to the top. Well, I get to the top, uh, I sit down, I rest, I enjoy the view, and then right as I was getting up to head down, Jeremy comes up, and um, so then we both sit down. Uh, we sit down, we, uh, we hang out, we talked about life, we, uh, we sang some hymns on top of the mountain, and it was just this kind of fun, beautiful moment uh, that made the difficulty of the hike well worth it. And then we realized that what was making this moment so beautiful uh, was that we were watching the sunset from the top of the mountain. And so uh, we realized the sun was setting. Uh, we, we knew that we were in trouble. Uh, and so we got up, and we started sprinting down the mountain uh, just as fast as we could. Um, and eventually, it got too dark for us to run, and so we slowed down to a walk. And then it got so dark that I picked up a stick, and I started just kind of poking the ground in front of us with it. Um, and we kind of I continued leading us down the mountain. And then it got so dark that Jeremy couldn't see me in front of him anymore. And so I, I reached back and I held his hand, and I led us down the mountain poking the ground with a stick. Um, around this point, I remembered that I had a flashlight in my bag. And so I get my bag out, and I pull out the flashlight. And, and to this day, I can still remember the sound that it made uh, when I picked it up. Some of you may have heard this sound from a flashlight before. It's kind of a kerchunk sound. And that is the sound of a flashlight with one battery. <laughs> uh, the one battery sliding around in it. And uh, we then recalled that we had removed the battery and put it in our remote control earlier that day. Um, so the flashlight was no help. Then we remembered that I had a disposable camera in my bag. And so we decided we were just going to take pictures all the way down the mountain. Uh, and we would use the flash to light our way. And so we tried it. And... Um, <laughs> The flash blinded us. We, uh, we were in a worse state than we were before. We, it was actually worse to use the flash. And then I remembered that disposable cameras have a double, AA battery in them. Uh, so I opened the camera, I got the battery out, and I put it in the flashlight, only to find that the flashlight still didn't work. I don't know if they're rated differently or whatever, but the AA battery from a disposable camera did not work in a flashlight. And so the disposable camera was no help to us. 
Uh, so having failed to get anywhere with a flashlight or the disposable camera, I resumed uh, leading us down the mountain by poking the ground with a stick. And uh, eventually, uh, we noticed that we were hearing leaves crunching under our feet. And Jeremy, uh, Jeremy was like, you know, I don't, I don't think there should be leaves on the path, Jeff. And so we stopped, and we kind of felt our way back to the path. And it's at this point that Jeremy uh, staged a small rebellion, and uh, he had enough. And so he sat down in the middle of the path, and he refused to go any further, and he called 911. <laughs> and about three hours later, uh, the rescue crew found us. It's a long three hours, by the way. Uh, three hours later, the rescue, rescue crew came and found us. Uh, they led us the rest of the way down the mountain, and they told us that if we did any more hiking, not to do it at Table Rock. <laughs> so I'm unofficially banned from Table Rock. But the point is, uh, Jeremy and I had exhausted all of our resources. We, we tried everything that we could think of uh, before we actually called to anybody else for help. Uh, we tried leading, us, leading ourselves down the mountain, poking the ground with a stick, uh, we tried a flashlight that didn't work. We tried all kinds of options. We even dis- disassembled a disposable camera, hoping we could find some sort of way to get down this mountain. Uh, but the reality was that if we wanted to escape that situation uh, that we were in, there, there was one option. There was nothing left for us to do except to cry out to someone who could actually help us. Well, that's where Israel is at in our passage today. Uh, they have exhausted all of their resources in their efforts to rescue themselves, and they are still hopelessly stuck. And the situation of our world today is not very different than the world of Isaiah. Uh, We live in a world that's in spiritual chaos. Uh, People don't know who they are or where they're going or what they should be doing. Uh, They can feel the burdens of sin and and shame, but they don't have an answer for them. And so the spiritual chaos around us is evidence of a world exhausting its resources in its search for relief, uh, for, for rescue from the effects of sin. Uh, people are trying everything. Uh, they're searching for relief, uh, new religions, new spouses, new identities, new hobbies, uh, new jobs, new collectibles, anything that might bring relief or bring happiness or success, uh, anything that can ultimately drown out the reality that things aren't okay, that things aren't all right. And this, this isn't only a problem for those outside of the church. Uh, we still at times do the same things. You know, before we turn to God for help in a difficult situation, before we turn to God for help in our struggle with, with sin or in our desire for comfort or happiness, you know, before we turn to God, we exhaust all of our own resources. Uh, we attempt to rescue ourselves in our own strength. We look to idols for the comfort and happiness that they promise and don't deliver uh, things that we should only find in the Lord. Uh, we, we look to ourselves and to created things to solve our spiritual problems. Uh, to, to quench our spiritual hunger and thirst, all the while knowing uh, where we can go to find the bread of life, the, the fount of living water. And since, since just like Israel, we also know what it is like uh, to exhaust all of our resources and to find ourselves still hopelessly stuck and in need of rescue, uh, we need to pay close attention to Isaiah's words today. And so this morning, uh, we're going to walk through this passage together. And then we'll take just a few minutes to look at four ways that we should respond to our passage today. And as we begin, we hear Isaiah cry out for help. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 again. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. 
When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. As you hear these words, you recognize that this isn't kind of a casual prayer. Uh, this is a white-knuckled, heart-rending cry for help. You know, if you've exhausted your resources to the point where you know that the only way that you can be rescued is for the God of the universe to step out of heaven and into your world, you're not going to be praying casually. In these first four verses, Isaiah is essentially asking God to come down from heaven and to rescue them. And the imagery here is incredible. Isaiah describes the mountains shaking, uh, fires breaking out. He's, he's asking God to come down in a show of power and glory like he's done in the past. You know, when you think of the way that um, at the Exodus describes uh, God descending on Mount Sinai, you know, it's with the sound of trumpets, and we're told that the mountain was covered in darkness, uh, that it looked like it was on fire, that it was wrapped in darkness and flame. You know, Israel is so bad off that its only hope for rescue is for God to leave heaven and to enter the world and Isaiah prays this because he knows that God's done it in the past and that they need him to do it again. And so why do they need God to do this? Uh, because he's the only one who can. That's what Isaiah says. God's the only one who can. Isaiah tells us there's no other God like this God who actually hears and who actually acts on behalf of his people. He tells us that all of the other gods are just worthless idols. Israel's God is the only true God and he is the only one who can do what Isaiah is describing. But a question comes to mind, well, what is Israel in need of being rescued from? Well, Isaiah tells us. He tells us in verses 5 through 7 as he describes their hopeless state. Let me read Isaiah 5 through 7 for us. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Isaiah tells us that Israel doesn't need to be rescued from their enemies or even from their circumstances. They need to be rescued from God's anger at their sins. He tells us that they have been in their sins for a long time. He tells us that they knew that God was angry. Uh, he, they knew that God was angry with them and that they kept on sinning. And as he thinks about his, his sins and as he thinks about Israel's sins, he asks a question. Shall we be saved? Shall we be saved? Isaiah wants to know in light of their sins, if they can even be saved at all. Is there anything that can save them from God's wrath? God has rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. He's delivered them from the hands of their enemies time and time again. But will God rescue them from his own anger? You know, Isaiah wants to know if there is any hope for sinners like them. And maybe we wonder the same thing sometimes. Isaiah explains that in their sin, Israel is unclean like a leper. He says that they deserve to be cast out from God's presence. In verse 6, a verse that many of us will recognize from um, when Apostle Paul later qu uh, quotes it, he says that even their righteousness is like a polluted garment. You know, Isaiah is saying that even when they try to obey God, all their actions are still polluted by their sin, and, and because of their sin, they are cut off from their source of life. 
Uh, they are cut off from God, like a leaf is cut off from its tree. He says they fade like a leaf. You know, we all just kind of live through the fall. We've seen leaves change colors. We've seen them fade. We've seen them eventually be cut off from the tree and let go. Uh, most of us in here probably spent several months dealing with millions of leaves, uh, dry leaves, and, and we could watch them as the wind would blow them around. In our yard, sometimes you, you do your yard and your neighbor didn't, and then the leaves blow into your yard. Sometimes you're the guilty party. Uh, but we've seen wind blow leaves back and forth. You know, Isaiah explains that Israel is like a dried up leaf that is being blown around with, uh, wherever their sin takes them. You know, and a leaf is at the mercy of the wind, and that's Israel, blown around by their sin, helpless unless God will help them. But then Isaiah tells us about another of Israel's sins. He says that no one will call on God's name. No one's calling on God. The people aren't interested in God. Even though they are in trouble, even though they are stuck and helpless, uh, they aren't calling on the one who can actually help them because they are content in their sin. And, there's, and if, if God's anger is the cost of their sins, then they're willing to pay it. And as a result of this, God has hidden his face from them. He has turned them over to the consequences of their sins. You know, if this is the situation, no wonder Isaiah wonders if, if they can be saved. And I want to stop right here uh, for a second and ask a question. You know, are, are we wondering the same things this morning? You know, are, are we asking if even, if even God can rescue us? from where we're at right now. Uh, maybe we've asked that question in our own heart this morning. Uh, maybe you've thought that because of all the wrong things that you've done, God can never forgive someone like you. Uh, maybe you've thought that with everything in your life that's gone wrong, that God could never rescue you. Are you in a situation that you think God can't change? If that's you this morning, take heart and keep listening to Isaiah's words. You know, whether your favorite idols have failed you or if you've tried open rebellion against God and it didn't turn out to be what you hoped it would be. Or maybe you just lost interest in God like some of these Israelites and you've drifted far away from him by following one distraction after another. Uh, maybe the circumstances of your life have you feeling completely lost and overwhelmed. You know, have we exhausted all of our resources? Do we need to be rescued? Well, here's some really good news for us this morning. You know, our passage takes a pretty dramatic turn here at verse 8. Uh, there's an incredible transition right here. So let me read verse 8 for us. I'm sorry, Isaiah, Isaiah has been listing kind of all of their sins, all of the reasons that God has, has to be um, angry with them and all the reasons God should be angry with them. But then kind of all of a sudden, verse 8, Isaiah appeals to God as the father of Israel. I'm going to read verse 8. It says, But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. And what an incredible verse. Uh, Isaiah, Isaiah is saying to God, even though everything I just said is true, please forgive us anyway. And that's where we're at with Isaiah. He says, even though everything I said is true, please forgive us anyway. And, and look at the name that Isaiah chooses to use for God. In your Bibles, you'll notice that the uh, the first time it says Lord, all the letters of the Lord are capitalized. Uh, that means in the Hebrew it says Yahweh. And the significance of this is that Yahweh is God's covenant name. It's the name that God gave to his people to call him. And it represents the relationship, the promises that they've made one another. And so when Isaiah says, oh, Yahweh, he's appealing to God. 
He's appealing to God to remember his special relationship with his covenant people, Israel. But then Isaiah goes on to call God their father. And he goes on to call him their potter. These are intimate names for God. You know, Isaiah is reminding God of their unique relationship that he has with his people, and he asks God to have mercy on them. You know, this is the relationship that a child has with their parents. You know, it's, it's the kind of relationship where someone can come to you and say, I've done everything wrong. I have ruined everything. But please forgive me and love me anyway. That kind of request is built on an intimate, loving relationship. Uh, maybe you've had a child come to you and say something like that. Uh, come to you, you know, you've seen the, the drawings on the wall. You've seen the mistakes the kids have made that they can't hide. And so your kid comes and they say, I've done everything wrong. Please forgive me and love me anyway. Uh, maybe you've been the one uh, who's had to go to someone else and say that. That's what Isaiah is doing here with God. You know, he's not asking God to forgive them because they aren't really guilty or because they deserve to be forgiven. He knows that they don't deserve to be forgiven. He just listed why they shouldn't be forgiven. He's asking God to forgive them because of who they are in light of their relationship with him. And I'd love to tell you that this chapter ends with with God answering Isaiah's prayer right then and right there, but it doesn't. This chapter ends with Isaiah lamenting the suffering of Israel. I'm going to read verses 10 through 12 again for us. Uh, Verses 10 through 12 say, Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, where our fathers praised you, has been burned by fire, and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? And that's how it ends. Isaiah ends this chapter by describing the destruction that will occur in Israel. Uh, He ends his prayer with a lament, uh, much like you might find in the book of Psalms when David prays and uh, he kind of just pours out his heart to God. And I'm going to read verse 12 one more time. It says, Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Isaiah wants to know if the destruction of everything that Israelites hold dear, he wants to know if that's going to be enough. He wants to know if that's going to be enough. Uh, will it satisfy the wrath of God? And, and that's how the chapter ends. And the reality is that the Old Testament Israel didn't know the answer to this question. Uh, they had received God's promise uh, to send them a deliverer, but when, when the book of Isaiah was written, they were still waiting. But that question remained. You know, what would it take to satisfy the wrath of God against our sins? You know, would the destruction of their cities satisfy the wrath of God? Would the destruction of the temple satisfy the wrath of God against their sin? Would the coming exile of their own people, would it satisfy the wrath of God against their sins? You know, that's what Isaiah asks at the end of this chapter. What will it take? What will it take for our sins to be forgiven, for our relationship with our God to be restored? Well, this morning, this morning we're here because we know the answer to this question. You know, what would it take to satisfy the wrath of God against sin? It would take God rending the heavens and coming down. Humanity had exhausted all of its resources. Uh, We needed a divine rescue, and so God did come down. But he didn't come down in a show of power and glory, shaking the mountains and filling the skies with fire. He he entered the world quietly. Uh, He was born as a baby in a little town called Bethlehem. Uh, He grew up in an out-of-the-way place called Nazareth. He he did the ordinary work of a carpenter for the majority of his life. Uh, He ministered and he taught throughout Israel for three years. He 
He died on a cross and satisfied the wrath of God against our sins, and he conquered death and hell when he was raised again from the dead. You know, our God, once, adi- once again, uh, he, did not, uh, he did things that we didn't look for. He didn't come the way we expected. Um, he didn't even come the way that we asked. He came the way that we needed him to come. You know, we, we owed a debt that only God could pay. We were trapped in the darkness. Our resources were exhausted. And all of our trying had just left us more trapped. Our only hope was for God to rend the heavens and to come down, and he did. And so that's what we're celebrating this Christmas. You know, when we look at the nativity scenes, uh, we see the decorations in our homes and in our neighborhoods. You know, we're not just celebrating a holiday season. We're celebrating the incredible truth that God fulfilled his promises to rescue his people by leaving heaven, by coming into this world. So when we celebrate Christmas, we're celebrating the fact that Jesus Christ gave hope to all of us who had exhausted all of our resources and who were out of options. We were helplessly enslaved uh, by our sins. And so Christmas is the answer to Isaiah's prayer. That's the good news of Christmas. Our hope has come. Our rescuer has come. And so the question for us this morning is, well, how do we respond to the good news of Christmas? And let me give us four ways, four ways that we can respond to the good news of Christmas this morning. First, uh, we respond by turning away from our idols. We respond by turning away from our idols. And the reason we turn away from our idols is because, as Isaiah, as Isaiah tells us, they can't actually help us. They don't actually do us any good. They make promises that they can never deliver. You know, what, what are the things that we are turning to for comfort or to rescue us from our emotions or from our stress or from our sins or from our circumstances that aren't Jesus Christ? You know, are, are we relying on our family or on shopping or on the holiday spirit or even on food to get us through the holidays? You know, we should take time today. I'll take time. Ask yourself, are there idols in my life? Are there, are there things that I'm turning to and asking to provide something for me that only God can do? Um, are there things that I need to turn away from? Am I putting my hope in something that cannot really deliver what is promised to me? And so the first way that we respond to the good news of Christmas is by turning away from our idols because they can't help us. The second way that we respond is by turning away from our sins. Uh, we heard this in the passage. We, return, we respond by turning away from our sins. Uh, some of us may be here this morning who are just absolutely stuck in our sins. Uh, like Israel, uh, we know that what we are doing goes against God's plan for us, but we're continuing to sin anyway. And, and here's the reality about sin. Uh, sin is like a credit card. Uh, sin is like a credit card. It gets you what you want when you want it, but you still have to pay. Uh, so again, it's just false promises. You know, what, what sins are we holding on to uh, that we need to let go of? And so let's take time at Christmas to celebrate Christmas, but also take time to look at our own hearts. Um, you know, we can't let the busyness of the Christmas season distract us from what's going on in our hearts. You know, the Bible tells us that understanding our own hearts is like looking into a deep well. So let us, as we consider Christ coming at Christmas, let us also reflect on our own hearts, um, see the places where we need him to come. So that's the second way we respond is by turning away from sin. The third way that we respond to the good news of Christmas is by turning away from our lack of interest. By turning away from our lack of interest. You know, Isaiah tells us that no one in Israel was calling on the name of the Lord for help. And I think we all struggle with this at times. You know, are we treating God like some distant relative who we love but don't really want to talk to? Um, If we're finding ourselves bored with God, if we're finding ourselves bored with the message of of Christmas or bored with the truth of the gospel... 
then we need Christmas, we need the gospel more than we know. You know, if, if you see that you've lost your interest in God, uh, don't panic. Tell him. Ask him to restore your interest. Ask, you, ask him to restore your love for him. Ask him to help you, to love him, to love his word. Uh, ask your friends to pray for you. Uh, don't be content with a spiritual disinterest in God. Isaiah tells us that in this passage. So the third way we respond is by turning away from our lack of spiritual interest. The fourth way that we respond is by turning to our Father. Uh, the fourth way we respond is by turning to our Father, who knows that we have done everything wrong, and even when we've tried our hardest, and He still loves us and forgives us. You know, Jesus Christ has made a way for our sins to be forgiven through His life and His death and His resurrection. And Hebrews 4.16 tells us that we can now approach the throne of grace with confidence. It tells us that we can approach God with the boldness of children, knowing that even when we do everything wrong, our parents still love us, we're still accepted, we're still loved, we're still welcome to come home. You know, this Christmas, if your idols have failed you, if you are feeling helpless, if you feel like you are being blown here and there by your sins, if you find yourself in need of God's help, but still uninterested, if you have exhausted your resources and you aren't sure where to turn, follow Isaiah's lead. Follow Isaiah's lead and turn to the Father who knows everything that you've ever done wrong, the Father who knows your every need and yet still loves you and still welcomes you home. 